Hello, my name is Sylvia Frost, and I'm a book cover designer at sfrostcovers.com and a USA Today best-selling paranormal romance author of books like Moonbound and The BBW and the Beast. And I'm here today with Mary Novak. Hello. And since Mary is the developmental editor here, I'll let her take it away and explain exactly what that means. Okay, so developmental editing is all about editing for the substance of a book. You might know copy editors who are fixing things like commas out of place and other typo type mistakes, but a developmental editor starts earlier in the process and is telling you uh, things like, well, you know, your heroine and your hero seem to hate each other. Is that really romantic enough? And um, and other ad advice about just getting getting the the outline and everything else about the substance written. So I do that through uh, my website, msnovacedits.com. So in the spirit of Mary's developmental editing credentials and my experience as a USA Today bestselling paranormal romance author, every week we're going to be analyzing a top-selling self-published author in, in the indie world. And since I'm Paranormal Romance, I thought that we would start with one of my personal favorites, T.S. Joyce. Uh, so T.S. Joyce is well known for her shifter romances and shifter, not werewolf or anything else, because in, for example, in the Borlander series, which is her most recent one, um, I know that we've got a gorilla on board. There's a boar with giant tusks on board, as well as a number of bears. They're all shifters working on a logging crew, and the books are really fun. And besides being really great books, they also sell really great. Um, you consistently see T.S. Joyce's books at the top of the paranormal romance charts. And I think as an author, um, it's always my responsibility to be aware of other best-selling authors because they can act as a barometer for both great writing and what readers want. And so I think in analyzing and looking at these books, our goal is to see what T.S. Joyce does that works and not necessarily copy it, but learn how to take some of those techniques and apply it to our own work and how we write ourselves, or in Mary's case, in how she looks at her client's work. And so to do this, we looked through the um, Amazon rankings and chose three of T.S. Joyce's top books. Bear My Soul, which has a bear shifter who is also a firefighter. Chance for Hire, uh, which has a wolf shifter. And um, Borlander Silverback, which actually has a gorilla, silverback gorilla shifter as the hero. And so these are three of the very top books um, on her list. We've read them all. So in these three books... I think that we saw a couple of different techniques that T.S. Joyce uses, and the end result gave her a couple of different things that I think are huge contributing factors to her success. And those are she was able to create a super sympathetic, relatable heroines. She uses shifters as a metaphor, and she's able to make her setting really come alive. But most importantly, I think the biggest takeaway that I got from reading T.S. Joyce as an author is she was able to make her romance unputdownable by focusing really only on the good parts of the romance and being a super disciplined writer. And I think that's a word you'll hear Mary use a lot. Let's just jump into how she makes these things happen. So to briefly kind of sketch in a little more about what these books are about. In Bear My Soul, the um, hero lives in a rural area and works as a firefighter with the rest of his like bear crew. 
the heroine leaves a very dead-end, degrading job. She's a single mother. Um, and Rory, meanwhile, has really been out on her own um, in a way that I think any single mother could really identify with as far as just sort of trying to juggle everything herself. So now she comes to this very loving group instead. Yeah, so I think that this actually hits really well on our first point of a sympathetic and relatable heroine. I mean, all of her heroines are very sympathetic, but this one, I think in particular... Don't you think? Right. Well, they really all are. Um, Rory's a, a very, very, very relatable in terms of that her, her issues are ones that I think that a lot of readers might get. And so we start in the very first chapter. Um, she's in this dead-end job, seems to be something like a secretary. Her boss is, you know, totally harassing her. Everyone's looking down on her. And she's got to go pick up her kid from preschool. And so it creates this tension that's very... Um, understandable the things that she's suffering and part of the reason that she's suffering all these things is that she's completely on her own with her son um, and so the fantasy is to go and you know find this group find her man and find this group who will take her in and adore her and it's kind of you know you can really feel her joy as that happens yeah I think too one of the things that makes her relatable is you know it, you really put her in a moment of struggle right away with this kind of sexist yeah. boss. And so as a reader, you are automatically on her side. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something that T.S. Joyce does a really good job of throughout is kind of making the, the hero, the heroines, um, if they don't, if they aren't the good guy, then they, you know, become the good guy. And they're very clear good guys and bad guys, I think. Right. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more in later books about what happens when they don't necessarily start off as the good guy. But either way, you can really feel for her heroines. And they're really put in tough spots immediately. Then in Chance for Hire, as far as sympathetic, um, relatable heroines go, this is actually more of a challenge, a pretty common um, challenge to start with in um, romance. And it works really well, which is that the the heroine is directly opposed to these guys. She was raised by the most evil like anti-shifter I don't know just bad guy um or she spent that's her father and so who is now dead and so she has actually come showing up to this area to avenge him and has never really known anything other than this but she's she nonetheless is very sympathetic and relatable because we're very clear on the way that she was raised to think with hatred and then very quickly, as soon as, you know, the, the hero and his family kind of show her the light, she has zero doubt. She sort of lets, abandons all of her, um, all of this upbringing that she had um, and moves right on into um, kind of seeing the a clear path ahead. Yeah, I think another thing, too, is as a reader, again, we know that that will happen and quickly from the way that she talks and the, the narrative of her head is kind of, you know, they are monsters and they are evil. It's not, there aren't really any shades of complexity. So the switch is easy to make because mm -hmm. as a reader, we're never in doubt that she was raised by the bad guy and that she's going to become a good guy. You know, the shifters are always very clearly the good guys and we know she's going to get there, you know? The first interaction that she has with the shifters is her first seed of doubt. One of the other shifters' mates is pregnant, and she mm -hmm. sees him taking taking care of her. Right. Another thing that builds characters is competence, and I really appreciated that um, that this the heroine of Chance for Hire um, is very competent. Like um, she 
plants, you know, before she had planted booby traps and then she's going out very efficiently collecting all of her um, booby traps. And so she is, she's never really a damsel in distress. She's good at what she does and she's confident about it. And that also makes her more appealing. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast because both of the women um, in Bear My Soul and Chance for Hire are competent. And both of them are kind of in situations where they are alienated or are struggling with their kind of community that they're in now. You know what I mean? With the urban community. Yeah, with these sort of urban philosophies, whereas Bear My Soul, it is kind of this, she's been, she was ostracized from her mother Mm -hmm. because her mother kind of disowned her after she had a child out of wedlock. And um, uh, her boss doesn't think that mothers can be good employees. And then in uh, Chance for Hire, she's sort of more entrenched in her community, but she very quickly kind of realizes the flaws in it, too. Right, and and also you you really feel both of these heroines and the third heroines um, joy in finding their new community yeah. and being embraced in it, and that's actually one of the bigger parts of the sort of like the wonderful kind of fantasy and wish fulfillment that's happening here is just showing up on somebody's doorstep, and not only are you know they hot for you from the first look, but their whole family is embracing you as well, and so yeah. it 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 feels really good. And you really have a sense of where the heroines came from and that this is something very special to them. Yeah. I think one thing to, to keep in mind when, when with my writing and, and is to kind of put your heroines in, in tough spots and give them a, you know, a tough spot from the beginning that kind of can put them in, in a sympathetic light and give them this kind of internal struggle, whether it's between an old community and a new community or, or an, anything else. Having a heroine be a, a good girl, not not a good girl in terms of like you know that she's chaste, not not that at all necessarily, but that she is good moral fiber. Mm-hmm. That moral fiber is being challenged by the outside world until she finds in the hero someone who shares her values. And I also understand that all of this is partly coming from that discipline aspect. I mean, I don't in all three books, I don't think that the heroine's backstory ever takes up more than three to maybe five pages total. And I have to say that I think that the backstory in for the heroine in Borland or Silverback, I actually don't remember reading another romance that had a more compelling backstory. Okay, well, do you um, want to talk a little one. bit so, more about that? Um, so Borland or Silverback um, were with a different group, I think mostly bears, but a few extra animals, including this um, gorilla, who's our hero. They're, they're loggers. And our heroine this time is a cop in the whole universe of shifters things are getting worse for the shifters and she has been sent to sort of police the shifters um, even though it's sort of ill-defined well she has like a breaking bad level quality story for her backstory as an undercover cop in a coke cutting mill where you know she has to be naked all the time because for for reasons that are all articulate it was really great and so she again is very competent she's a good cop she's good at the things that she does but she's coming from again an incredibly alienated you know almost unparented background and then joining this family but this really compelling story happens in like three pages and then we're back to the races and now we know what we need to know about the heroine. And there's a real discipline in not spending like a chapter drawing out that story instead. It's not necessary. You know, these, yeah. these heroines are being built as strong characters 
in very little space. I guess my question then is, Mary, if they're not devoting all these pages to backstory mm-hmm. or kind of other ways of building the heroine's character, how do they how do they build the heroine character? What are some of the other techniques that we see T.S. Joyce use? Something that was very striking to me in all three of these books is about how the relationship between, how cooperatively the relationship between the hero and the heroine develops each mm-hmm. time. Um, I, uh, when I was a reviewer for All About Romance, we would talk about the big misunderstanding, which is something that would, you know, drive, you know, some stupid fight. It was always a really, really stupid fight if we called it this, that would drive the couple apart for like six to eight chapters before somebody sprains an ankle and has to be carried somewhere. Um, and, and they get back together. And instead, when, this is very much focused on how cooperative the hero and the heroine are. Like in um, Bear My Soul, where the hero finds out that he has this five-year-old that he didn't know about. He spends a couple pages being annoyed and upset that he that the, that the heroine didn't tell him about it. And then he grows up and moves on and understands why she did that. And for the whole rest of the book, he's super devoted to building a family with her. The two of them yeah. are very, very cooperative in their goals. Yeah, one thing I think that's different in shifter romance than it is in contemporary is this kind of devotion from the hero. I think in contemporary, you'll see a lot more of these kind of misunderstanding strife or heroes who are kind of more man whorish and, you know, and not as necessarily good to their heroines. But I think especially in paranormal romance, you know, the question of are they are they passionate about each other and are they in love is almost never in doubt. Right, it's just taken care of. From the very beginning. Yeah, it's just done. Um, and then you see kind of these other forces come in from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that's why it almost sets that up right in the beginning for her to have to be kind of alienated from the world outside because she's always going to find solace with her guy. Yeah. It makes sense then that you have to pump up the kind of animosity from the world around her because you need this conflict to come from somewhere. Right. Moving to our an, our, our next topic, which is the way that T.S. Joyce uses shifters as metaphor for different aspects of humanity. Yeah. This was one of my very favorite aspects of these books. Um, what I mean by this is that in these books, we really don't spend a lot of time like, ooh, I have super strength and claws. I am a bear. Um, and this is what it means to be a bear. It's really not digging into the fantasy of like the change. I can definitely imagine that there are other very successful shifter romances that do. Um, or that there may be others in these series that do. But here, it's everything is really like using shifters as a way to express something, to make some kind of statement about people. So, for example, in Bear My Soul, where it's all about building a family. Oh, I'm a bear. That means we care deeply about our cubs. I'm a wolf. Therefore, you know, we mate for life. And, um, you know, sort of starting from whatever the animal is and then... Um, branching out into a lot of different things. I'm a I'm a bear and therefore it makes sense that we're firemen because we really want to spend time outside. And um and we I mean we want jobs job, we need jobs that are physical. And so you know people like that. You might be a person like that, but here it's kind of like the bear adds to it. The fact that the fact that he's a bear just makes it that much more intense. Yeah. While there are, you know, kind of these outside forces that come in from the books and try and disrupt you know, these shifter communities and there's kind of prejudice towards shifters mm-hmm. in her world. 
there's not kind of this high and overcomplicated political world building that you see in some, in for example, like a J.R. Ward book or like especially these vampire books, you know, where you get all these like sort of fancy hierarchical, you know, complications and challenges and the communities themselves are pretty stable. It's just the community threatened by, you know, another community. Right. Well, and, and I mean, part of that is because, like, vampires often tend to be sort of elite, they're courtly, and right. so really, you know, these kind of Baroque political st- situations are different from what we know about the way that animals organize themselves. Um, but my, my very favorite of the metaphors um, was actually in Borlander Silverback, who's the gorilla, who is a guy who is one of 15 children raised by one father in a family group with like seven mothers who are then having the kids. And he find you know, so at first I thought, oh, okay, so I guess maybe we are getting a little more animal. And then the character himself lays it out. And he's like, you know, somebody once said that kind of sounds like a cult. So I looked up cult and I was like, yeah, we're, you know, so he's living, he's raised in this, you know, polygamous cult um, of gorillas, which, um, and just to bring that background, and instead of getting all into what the human reality of that would be, to just sort of simplify it with, well, this is how gorillas are. I don't necessarily like it, and I'm going to change, but this is where it come from. The next question is kind of, well, how does she make these communities come alive? Yeah, because they're fantastic. It's one thing, it's one thing to make a community, and it's another to kind of make it really vivid and like somewhere that you'd want to inhabit right i really really appreciated t.s joyce for taking these sort of rural or small town stories that are not idealized um i don't know her background but it really felt like something she knew a lot uh, knows a lot of details about there's an originality that you get um one small example, there's a heroine in um, the Borlander Silverback heroine has a full sleeve of tattoos. Well, that's not just to make her look tough. The tattoos are also, you know, telling her story and her way of recording a story when she could in any other way. Um, there's some wonderful rural outdoorsy joy. Some of the bears have a hill and they have a slip and side that goes down the hill and the entire bear family just goes down the hill together on what sounds like kind of a homemade water slide. And I was like, I want in, but it's mm-hmm. such a, it's a, it's a joyful, beautiful image, but it's also bringing like originality to joy and there's kind of a moment like that in every book and it really works yeah i mean i think more than originality i would call it specificity that too you know it just it feels like she's really nailing down these details that really make it alive and i think and i know a little bit more about t.s joyce's background she says on i think she says on her author page like i live in a in a tiny town outside a tiny city, and I write big stories. Yeah. And it's just, I think that's a great line, although I'm probably butchering it. But, so this is a place she knows. And I think it's kind of an old cliche, but really write what you know. And I think that there is, there's kind of a limit to research in some ways. You know, you can research, but I think there's some colors that she gets just because she was there Mm -hmm. and feelings. It's not so much that there was a flip and slide there. But she knows and is able to illustrate the kind of joy that doing that right. can, can be. Owning the life yeah. in a way, not just sort of pasting it on and how am I going to get from A to B, but really owning this is what's possible. This, this is how they might have fun. This is how they might right. argue. Really knowing that and bringing that specificity. It's a big yeah, thing. Yeah, I think it's really big. And I think, again, it's sort of, 
it makes kind of the threat that the baddies pose all the more serious because you really enjoy the time, Mm -hmm. these moments of joy. I think the one thing that I fall prey to in my writing is kind of this temptation to just have constant sort of action and threat and conflict and tension because it can seem like, oh, well, that will, what's going to get the reader to turn the page. But because T.S. Joyce is able to have these intense moments of joy, it makes the stakes all that higher, actually. Right. And that is also a, a quick point about the um, external threats, which tend to be things like government agencies and other anti-shifter groups, is that um, they will they tend to show up really in the picture in about the 75% mark because the hero and heroine by then haven't had a lot of conflict between them, so they have this you know next threat to deal with. Um, again, these are original and specific kinds of threats that are... I found the fight scenes really interesting to read, it's a way to sort of deal with the conflict of a romance and instead of trying to generate what can sometimes be sort of empty conflicts um, between the two characters, if you can bring a compelling threat from both sides, then they're going to have to work together. Yeah. I mean, personally, it was really interesting to read how this can be effective because in my in my own writing, I gravitate towards more having the shifters be a metaphor for personal, personal problems. And I know... Um, some of my other favorite authors do that as well. I think Tasha Black does that really well, and maybe we'll talk about her books next time. It's interesting to see how it can work the other way and be really effective, and I think it's something that actually readers really like. I think readers are kind of tired of, especially in paranormal romance, where the idea is they're already faded. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you know that they're faded and there's there's they're gonna be together, it can seem like conflict that's sort of interpersonal can seem manufactured, right? Because it's already almost a given from page one that they're destined to be together, right? Right. Whereas, say in like contemporary, maybe not as much, yeah. and especially in shifters, where I think there are, is this idea of this almost animal forever fateful bond the last thing that we both we really appreciated about uh, T.S. Joyce's work was again this discipline this you know going for the good parts making the story impossible to put down um, by focusing on the good parts and so we've talked about how um, there is not very much like there's very little manufactured conflict between the hero and the heroine and instead they're very cooperative but they have an outside world that they have to deal with in various ways. Talks about that very the very brief backstories. The the horrible boss in Bear My Soul appears for the first five pages and then he is gone. Yeah, we don't we don't need to keep going back. He's to never that. mentioned we're, again. Yeah, we're we're done. She doesn't dwell on it like you know there aren't yeah. a, there are like almost no pages of the heroine or the hero just sort of dwelling thinking by themselves on right. things. And I think you you almost have to if you're a writer I think you might almost have to see this in play to really kind of get what we're talking about, about how it works. That, because it doesn't feel choppy that we're kind of jumping to. Right. And then they met. And now they're ready to get together. Right. And here's what's still giving something to read about, but they're not you know, fighting or completely misunderstanding each other. There's just this efficiency that makes it very readable because we're tired of stupid misunderstandings. We're tired of a lot of things when they're done badly. And yeah. to show that, hey, I can tell a story that's a really good story, and I can kind of skip, I'll just skip that part entirely and take you to the next part, and instead spend time on developing the setting and the, these joyful moments, developing the fights. Um, it's really well, well-spent writing. Yeah, I would say I think this is really the most important point 
about of today, and this is true of shift of romance, is that when you're having the problems be external, then you don't need to develop all these kind of long, laborious, navel-gazing passages. You can just kind of propel from one moment to another. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really compelling for readers, and that readers like to see, part of my French, they like to see shit happen. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't mean that you need to have them have sex on the first page at all. It just needs to mean, I think that she's got a a relatively lean style that's got dialogue um, that you're not going to see, you know, buried in paragraphs of description. Mm It's kind of, she's just very tight and effective. And I think that's something to aspire for, for sure. I mean, one thing that I've noticed even in my own books is that I have an 80-page book and I have a 240-page book. And the 80-page novella, and it could be for a variety of reasons, is selling way better than the novel. And I think part of that has to do with when I was editing, it had to be 20,000 words because it was for an anthology. And when I was editing, I literally had to cross out anything that didn't move the plot forward because I just didn't have space for it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm going to write my new novel, I'm kind of trying to take that approach now because I, I really think that that resonates with readers. Readers just don't want to waste a bunch of time. Yeah. They just want to get going. Yeah, yeah. You know, and another, you know, cleaning up a few other um, points that I really liked in these books um, or just things that are effective one of them there's a really good example of kind of building series by series so that you're running into the characters again I'm actually totally sold on the dragon book and the bash bear book and yeah, I think I'm, you I'm just bought keep, them right keep reading you're never gonna see Mary um, again she's no, gonna be hidden under a it's gonna happen every week I tell books. you what but um but the, so there's that building on the series really nice voice that I think has really grown with time especially to be very funny like some fantastic dry humor from the heroes the heroines tend to be really earthy and all of that is also you know contributing to the success here as well yeah I think we covered almost everything as we said we don't want this to be kind of a marketing podcast but I I call myself you know the the book brander right I I work with authors to create book brands so I would I would feel almost remiss I'm not touching on some of this stuff and I think one thing that Tia Stris does really well is her covers all hit the points of PNR they've got a hot guy with abs visible and then an animal and I think one thing of interest is if you've got those two things, those are kind of the cornerstones of it. And then for her text for um, Bear My Soul, which is where they're firefighters, you can see fire on there. And they're all very, from series to series, they're very clearly the same. If you think about these books, they're very they're very tightly and disciplined written. Mm-hmm. Everything that needs to be there is there mm-hmm. and not much else. Right. And so the covers are almost the same. Right. And they're also fulfilling particular wishes that, I, as far as I saw, are pretty consistent. Again, the alienated heroine finds a family, but they're done in really different ways. And so we read that three times, but I didn't feel like the story was repetitive. Right. I didn't feel like all the bears I met were the same bear by any means. For they sure. They seemed to have really, you know, a nice spread of personality. Yeah, I think that's true true uh for sure i see i see i've seen this before with other authors where they'll hit one out of the park and then they'll just hit it the same one out of the park again and again and readers will just you know get a little bit tired so i think the key of doing these really long series is finding ways to keep some of these core principles the same Mm -hmm. while of exploring different permutations of them you know so i think that she does that really well in in her covers too um, and another thing that's important to mem- mention is in terms of the length of these books. There's, I think, 
they're a hundred hundred ish pages. Yeah, they're really short. They're sh- well, okay. They're well, really they're, short. That's, yeah, they're disciplined. <laughs> they're really disciplined, right? Yeah. But they're not. They are a full story. Mm-hmm. I didn't read ever feel like some uh, the pacing was rushed or off. No, you know, it never felt like a part of the story was being cheated. So while they are short. Did you feel... No, no, again, this really went to my just kind of awe at the whole, let me give you the good parts, because right. for for so many of us as writers and editors, like figuring out, well, what are the good parts is a real challenge. And right. so to kind of basically pare a book down to the good parts, well, that's all well and good. You have to be, you have to know what they are. And I right. think this is a really nice... Well, that's what you do, review. isn't it? Yeah. You help people find the yeah, good Yeah, yeah, I help people find the, you know, I help people find opportunities that are kind of waiting in what they've already written that can kind of blow things up and make it that much bigger, that much stronger. Right. Um, but, I mean, you also, I mean, for me, I know that's what you did for me. For uh, Cinder's Wolf, you came in and said, well, this is just the scope here. It's getting a little big. Let's take out some of these scenes because they aren't the good parts yeah. necessarily. They aren't really connected to the core narrative that you're trying to tell. So I, I can really yeah. see you being a really great asset to a newer author starting out that wants to get to that yeah. discipline style. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also just want to say, because it is so good, but it is so hard. Because there's a lot of parts. And, like, yeah. how do you know which ones are the kind of, like, people are getting bored and which ones are, no, 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 this is, you know, this is moving great. Right. Well, so Mary can't say this, but I can because I've worked with her. And I think, you know, Mary is, that's, that's why it's good to have, if not Mary, then another developmental editor or... And this is why beta readers can't do it. Um, and beta readers can't because they don't... If you've listened to the way that we talk and we think it's very structural and we aren't just coming it from the perspective of what we like, we're coming it from the perspective of how does this work to keep us engaged and how does this work on a technical level? You know what I mean? Uh, I've worked with lots of beta readers and the real difference between that and the developmental editor is that they they really operate it from a singular perspective whereas a de- Whereas a developmental editor is trying to be all the readers at once. Right. That's part of why I'm really excited to be embarking on this series is that we're hoping to do this with lots of other authors and other genres and just successful people and just what works because you have to divorce yourself at least partly from, oh, I love this best right. versus I can tell you because I've seen it, this is what works. Right. So all that advertisement aside, <laughs> I mean, but see, I can say this because I get any money from Mary getting clients. I just think that she's really extraordinary, and that's why I wanted to talk with her because um, I think she just has an amazing mind. And I think there are lots of people who can look at r- genres like, you know, paranormal romance or romance in general and kind of look at some of these books on, on the top top list of, and see flaws and be like, oh, well, this has got a typo here or you know, oh, look, there's a shirtless guy on the cover. Like, this can't be seriously good writing. But it is. It's just not in the way that you maybe thought was good writing when you were in English class. It's just different. It's mm-hmm. a different kind of... And I love it, and I think lots of readers love it. And if you want to write best-selling romance or best-selling anything, you have to be aware of what readers want and, and how to give it to them. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It's yeah. really, really hard. And to undersell the amount of skill and talent someone like T.S. Joyce needs to be successful is just a huge mistake. And when yeah. I see new authors make, especially new self-published authors make, again and again and again, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just marketing either. It's just really, it's substance. Don't right. you think, Mary? Well, these know. are really substantive books. Um, I'm, I, I feel like in reading these books in order they were written, I believe, um, that there's still kind of a, a view of like a progression and this increasing depth. The whole shifter metaphor 
thing, being a metaphor for so many different things, just really caught my imagination. And I was like, I want more of this. If somebody can do this well, they are absolutely giving me something I want to read if they're, if they're showing me this great stuff. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just think what really just struck my imagination was just how how disciplined it was and how yeah. tight yeah <laughs> you know and I know how hard that is to do and I'm yeah. just super impressed but I think that that kind of brings us to the end to of our logical conclusion logical conclusion next week we're not sure yet what we're gonna do I'm thinking maybe like Bella Forest you're in the driver's seat until I, I decide to seat. yeah yeah I Bella Forest is if you ever look at the top 100 Amazon charts you will no doubt see her sort of floral looking vampire covers uh, with the little awesome. filigrees around them and you know so I think that might be a nice change of pace or mm-hmm. or maybe we'll look at Tasha but we'll figure it out and uh, thanks so much for listening to our first ever episode and be sure to start with substance yeah um, and if you want to find out more about either Mary or me you can find out more about my book covers at sfrostcovers.com that, that's s-f-r-o-s-t covers.com and Mary is at uh M.S. Novak Edits, so M-S-N-O-V-A-K Edits, all one thing, dot com. I think that we'll probably be posting a uh, text version of this on Mary's blog at her website. So if you want to kind of see more about the books or learn learn more about the podcast, I'd head over there. Definitely. Definitely. Okay.